So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. On today's episode, Dr. Jacqueline Persons talks on cognitive behavioral therapy case formulation and the importance of progress monitoring through formal symptom tracking measures. Dr. Persons is a clinical psychologist that has worked in a private practice setting providing cognitive behavioral therapy, training and consultation to professionals, and research for more than 35 years. She is a clinical professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California at Berkeley. She was past president of the Association of Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies and the Society for a Science of Clinical Psychology. She is a distinguished founding fellow, certified cognitive therapist, and a certified trainer of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. She is a recipient of the Outstanding Clinician Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies and recipient of the Distinguished Contribution and Applied Research and Practice in Psychology Award from the American Association of Applied and Preventative Psychology. She has authored three books and more than 70 articles and chapters. Now on to the interview. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to Sanity Podcast. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Can I tell you the first time I heard your name was in grad school because uh, my professor, Dr. Nelson, he was our resident CBT uh, supervisor, gave me your book on case formulation and conception. And I actually wrote my theoretical orientation internship essay based off your book. So I think part of me getting my degree and getting into internship the first time I applied was actually from your book. I'm very happy to hear that. Thank you. That's <laughs> a compliment to me. Yeah. So you can imagine how I'm excited I am to have you on the show to talk very much about case formulation. We're also going to be talking about tracking just because this is something that was rooted in the beginning of my grad school career in CBT. Fantastic. You got good training. I'll, t- yeah. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Nelson's listening, you know, a little shout out to him too for giving me, giving me the book. Um, one of the first things I ask people is what type of therapist you are, what does therapy mean to you? So we'll just go ahead and get started with that. Well, my answer would be I'm a cognitive behavior therapist and more generally in a certain sense, especially importantly, I'm committed to evidence-based practice. So those would be my two answers to your question. All right, let's break it down. What is evidence-based practice? Oh, that is a good question. I'm, I, I think that's an... In a certain way, it's almost an under-discussed question, so I'm thinking about writing a paper about it. To me, evidence-based practice means paying attention to the results of the randomized controlled trials and using them in your practice and relying on other types of evidence from the scientific literature. So, for example, evidence that suppression of thoughts and emotions uh, often causes more trouble than it fixes. Uh, evidence about the importance of imagery uh, in uh, depression and PTSD and emotions generally. So paying attention to the randomized controlled trials, paying attention to science more generally. And to me, a key element of evidence-based practice means 
collecting data, collecting data to monitor your patient's progress in therapy. And then I hesitated a little bit because really I also want to be saying using the scientific method in your practice. So doing hypothesis testing. You know, what is my hypothesis about the core mechanisms underlying the, this person's problems? What are the things I need to help this person change in order to help him accomplish his goals? And then monitoring to see if, uh, am I changing those targets? Like, am I helping this person reduce his need for certainty? And am I helping reduce those PTSD symptoms that we're trying to target in treatment? All right, so you're talking about evidence-based and kind of more of a metaform, uh, like this meta, like following the research on what is effective therapy, effective techniques, and integrating that into treatment. So there's science behind your treatment that says that what you're doing actually works, but also taking the scientific method in the way that you approach therapy on a case-by-case basis. This is my hypothesis of what's going on. This is the mechanism of action. This is my hypothesis that this technique will help change that. And therefore I should get based on this uh, hypothesis testing, the outcome I'm looking for. And if I don't, we got to switch it up. Yeah. Then we'll collect, maybe we'll develop a different hypothesis and try something different and collect some data. Yeah. So I want to be relying on the findings of science and the methods of science when I'm doing my clinical work. Mm -hmm. And, and where are you on the manualized treatment, like saying like, this is the evidence-based, this is the manual, follow the manual versus the research says that these techniques worked or this theory works and you integrating it into what you're doing in a non-manualized way? That. Then following the manual, I am not, um, I find very difficult to do. So what I'm trying to pay attention to is what is the formulation about the nature of psychopathology and its treatment that's built into the manual. Uh, if it's a manual describing a treatment that has been shown to be effective for a certain patient population. So I'm trying to pay attention to what are the mo- what's the model that's built into the manual uh, and then try to use it flexibly and adapt it to my patient. Um, but I'm not usually following the manual by turning the pages and going from one intervention to the other. Yeah, and and that's very much how I practice um, as well. So I'm I'm in that I'm in that camp. I'm guessing uh, with it's you. how most clinicians practice. To me, one of the reasons we practice this way is because you, a manual is usually treating a particular disorder. And often our patients have multiple disorders and problems, and so we got to figure out. And often we're trying actually to take advantage of more than one manual that's available to us to treat this patient. And so we're trying to um, mix and match mm-hmm. is frequently. Um, so for, for any patients or anybody that, that uh, I just threw out this term manualized treatment, but for any patients or Clinicians that are unsure what a manualized treatment is, do you mind just defining what it, what we're actually talking about with a manualized treatment? Certainly. What we're talking about when you and I talk about manualized treatment is we're talking about a treatment that's, that's written down in a manual that tells you what interventions to do when in the therapy. And it's a manual that was used by the therapist well, usually you and I are only talking about manuals that support evidence-based treatments. Mm-hmm. And that's the advantage of paying attention to the manual, which is the therapist 
who conducted the treatment in the randomized trial that showed that the therapy helped the patients who were in the randomized trial, those therapists used that manual. And so there's a database and an evidence base behind the manual. But um, you and I find the manual a little bit constraining, so we uh, we tend to deviate from the manual. Yeah, and, and these manuals, they have like day, week one, week two, week three, and they have worksheets and what you're going to be learning that day. And there yeah. is some flexibility. I don't want to make this because they might say for week four to seven, you might be doing this. So it might only be two sessions, but it, it's pretty set. Um, but for research, it, it actually, you know, it is very useful. Um, okay. So a big, the big topic, well, we have two big topics today. One is case formulation, case conceptualization. The other one is uh, tracking clinical outcomes. Um, and they very much go hand in hand with one another. But I was thinking we could start off with the case formulation, you defining what is a case formulation? What does case conceptualization mean? Why is it important for people to consider? Yes. Um, as you uh, hinted in your question, I use the terms case formulation and case conceptualization interchangeably. And what I mean by a case conceptualization is, is a hypothesis about the psychological mechanisms, I'll come back to that in a moment, that are maintaining the person's problems, disorders, and symptoms. And what I mean by psychological mechanisms is things like beliefs, schemas, skill deficits, uh, even things like executive functioning deficits, which we can actually not modify, but we can try to teach people skills to manage them. Mm -hmm. Things like perfectionism, intolerance of uncertainty, those are examples of what I mean by psychological mechanisms. And I'm starting to move my thinking more in a transdiagnostic direction. So these are mechanisms that underpin multiple symptoms and problems. And we want to know what those are when we're uh, thinking about our person, because we want to know what are the core mechanisms core mechanisms or most common mechanisms that are maintaining the person's symptoms and problems so we can target those for treatment. So that's one of the key things the formulation does for you is it tells you what what the treatment targets are. Okay. And uh, you just said a good word there, this, this transdiagnostic, um, meaning what are these problematic mechanisms that relate to human suffering general. So there's different anxiety disorders like social anxiety or OCD, but we know one thing about the difference that if you avoid, avoid your anxiety, the anxiety gets worse. We know that that is a common factor across all the anxiety disorders. So that's what she means by a transdiagnostic mechanism. Yeah. Avoidance is a big ticket one. Avoidance, safety behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to look for those more generally, no matter what anxiety disorder, for example, I treat a lot of anxiety disorders, perhaps mm -hmm. you do too. So avoidance, a big ticket mechanism underpinning anxiety disorders and mood disorders also. Yeah, In your work, besides avoidance and safety behaviors, so safety behaviors, um, we've talked about in previous podcasts, but they're like mini avoidance. It makes it so you could muscle through an anxiety provoking experience. So for example, if you're scared of elevators and you put headphones on to listen to music to be able to ride the elevator, it's a mini avoidance where you muscle through the experience, but it prevents the fear from going away because you say, well, it's the headphones and the music that got me through it. Rather, I'm a powerful person that could ride the elevator. 
Um, what other mechanisms are you thinking about in this transdiagnostic lens uh, besides avoidance and safety behaviors? Uh, skills deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm working with a patient in my office right now who could not make an assertive statement if his life depended on it. Mm. <laughs> he grew up in a family where uh, that kind of behavior is not modeled or rewarded, and he does not have good interpersonal skills. So he needs some uh, assertiveness training and other types of interpersonal skills training. Um, if you think about Beck's model, which is the model that was the foundation of my early learning, and think about Beck's ideas about schemas, schemas are, are mechanisms that we uh, often target for treatment. Beliefs like, I don't deserve uh, to have a good life. Other people don't like me. If they get to know me, they'll reject me. Mm-hmm. The world is a dangerous place. Those types of beliefs are mechanisms. Um, In my work with anxiety disorders, I'm targeting a lot of uh, intolerance of uncertainty, perfectionism, big ticket mechanism underpinning both anxiety and mood disorders and underpinning procrastination frequently. I, I think Those of the uh, my main go-tos. What do you think? Well, with the schemas, I also think of the cognitive filter, which directly relates to that, where you will take in information very easily that confirms the bad belief about yourself. But when there's something that says, well, maybe that belief isn't true, you either skew it so it so it fits in, or you bounce it off and you just don't even you don't even realize um, that it's there. And we all do that. Yep, we do. We all, we all do. do that. So I think that I'm bad at my job, that I'm not capable of doing it. My boss says, wow, you did a really good job on that project. That information is contrary to the belief that I'm not good at my job. So the person either forgets that, that the supervisor said it, or they excuse it away. Well, the supervisor is just trying to be nice. They know I'm not good, and they're just trying to boost my mood. Uh, that's an example for me. So that cognitive filter, I look at as a transdi- transdiagnostic mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, sometimes you see it even right in the front of you in the therapy session. Did you have a patient come in? Patient says, oh, I didn't do the homework. Which first I believe, then later I found out the patient did all the homework, but somehow they distorted their understanding of whether they did the, like they didn't do it perfectly, mm-hmm. or they asked the woman for a date, but she said no, so then they don't get credit for doing the homework, which was to ask her for the date. So these types of distortions are uh, common, and uh, we see them right in front of us. Mm-hmm. So and we, we do them ourselves, as you say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the best way to be a good therapist is to practice it on yourself. Uh, so I'm hoping that any clinicians listening to this podcast is doing all of this. Or I mean, when was the last time that, that I had to push against avoidance? Like just this morning, <laughs> you know, like we do it all the time. Exactly. Um, yeah, when I'm, when I'm doing supervision of young therapists and the therapist has got the patient in the office and the patient has a problem and the therapist doesn't know how to help the patient with the problem. Often I'll say to the therapist, because often these therapists, they're talented graduate students who have a lot of skills. I'll say to them, so now if that was your problem, what would you do to solve it? Rely Mm -hmm. on that information to help your patient. Oh yeah. Yeah. So in the case formulation that we're talking about here, we were talking about a high, you know, this is the problem hypothesized mechanism that's causing the problem using some sort of technique to treat it, and then seeing if the outcome changed. 
Uh, do you do anything with case formulation more on like a vertical looking at their past to figure out how these mechanisms even were created or these schemas, or does that not matter so much since we're a here and now therapy? Well, it matters less than in other therapies, I assume, not that I know too much about other therapies, but, um, but it can be useful um, to understand where did you get this belief that nobody likes you. It can be validating for the patient. It can help them um, not slip into self-criticism and blaming themselves for having such a distorted idea. You know, well, of course it makes sense you have that idea. You grew up in this family where you got a lot of criticism. Of course you believe that. So it can give some kind of validation and understanding. It also, for me as a therapist and for me and my patient too, it helps us um, it gives us a piece of data to support our hypothesis about, about the formulation itself. If we can tell a story that makes coherent sense about how the person came to develop that belief. You know, if, a, if I have a patient who believes I'm worthless, I don't count for every, anything. Actually, I'm thinking of one of my own persons right now. But I can't see where in their early environment they learned that. Oh, now I'm remembering what she told me then it calls my formulation into question. So the early information is is useful, um, but not the whole ball game. partly because what I'm really interested in now is what are the mechanisms that maintain the problem and keep it going, which might not actually be the same mechanism that caused the problem in the first place. I was literally just going to ask you that question. You read my mind. I'm a mind reader. Yes, you are I a mind this to my reader. Many times. <laughs> That's so funny. Because <laughs> I was going to say, like, you know, one thing we should talk about is is your thought on, you know, trigger what triggers maybe a depressive episode, and does that necessarily need to be the maintenance factor? But you already answered the question, which is um, no. Uh, one example I could give with this is that somebody might get into a fight with their spouse, which leads them to be depressed. Um, that that fight resolves, but because they were feeling depressed, they're doing worse at work. And so now they're depressed because they're not meeting performance standards and having a lot of depressive things about work. But work wasn't the initial problem. The argument was the problem. But now that that's resolved, it's not the maintaining mechanism. You might have a better example than the one that I gave, uh, but that's the one that came to my mind. Oh, that's great. And one of my colleagues pointed me to a fantastic article that talks about this issue. And he's got the three Ps. Uh, there's the perpetuating, which is the maintaining factors. There's the precipitating, which is the triggering factor. And then what's the other one? It's the it's the one the learning, the early learning, uh, predisposing. Oh, predisposition, yeah. What is it about your early environment that predisposed you to this situation so that when this precipitant came down the pike, it activated symptoms for you. And now what are the symptoms that are perpetuating? So those are the three different types of activating mechanisms. And the ones we usually want to pay the most attention to are the current perpetuating mechanisms, because we got to move those around. Mm -hmm. and, and how important are the other two? I mean, do we, do we care about those? Or do we do we anything do care about, about them? them? Like, for example, I'm thinking about one of my people. Uh, like a major perpetuating mechanism for him was rumination. So we targeted the rumination and treatment. However, another important factor and a major uh, 
create a major perpetual, what is, what am I trying to say? The triggering factor, the precipitating event for his clinical depression was a big move from the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And when we look back at his history, we could see that major life transitions typically precipitated a mood episode. We want that information yeah, for prevention. Because he's going to need that information later. Exactly. Yeah. So like right now, in fact, he's looking at a big ticket, major life transition. And so we're using that information to help him get prepared to realize this is a vulnerable time for you. What can you do to protect yourself and stay safe so you don't flip into another mood disorder episode? So yeah, we especially need the precipitating events information to protect the patient from later future episodes. Um, a, a big thing for, for me that's, um, that I learned, you know, I took a, a CPT seminar and I'd learned stuff from actually, a, uh, co sorry, cognitive processing therapy uh, for PTSD. I did a podcast on, I knew about it, and they talk about these things that they call index traumas or index events that that the patients with PTSD, usually it's like one to three of them. And those are the ones that if you work through them, usually they could, they could, their symptoms could resolve. But I actually found that idea of an index event really useful with my patients that I find that when they've had some sort of adverse event in their past, that is a source of their cognitions now. If I'm able to work through that event with them, I usually do exposure. Um, if I do exposure with the event and I'm able to reduce the affect and have them reprocess the event, it helps them unhinge their thinking in the now, but I almost see it like they're anchors on their feet, that they're having a hard time walking forward and changing their cognitions because they, even if it was 15 years ago, these, these weights on their feet are preventing them from moving forward. And I found it to be extremely helpful in my treatment. So you're saying, certainly we do that for PTSD, but you're saying that idea is more generally helpful even for patients who do not have PTSD. Absolutely. I found it useful for OCD when people have an OCD related to an adverse experience or like earlier on, and I will work on that adverse experience. And then all of a sudden they have a, a big drop in their obsessions and therefore drop in their compulsions. Uh, I don't know if anybody's researched this or not, but I just know through my, my clinical experience has been extremely helpful. Ah, it's a good idea. You should you should write it up, Jason. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll do a podcast on it. Um, so all right. So anything else on case? We're going to talk about this more, but anything specific about case formulation that we should put out there before we talk about the importance of of um, doing tracking measures when we're doing therapy? Well, maybe I would say one of the reasons it's important to do tracking measures if you're using a formulation to guide your treatment is mm -hmm. because if you're using a formulation to guide your treatment, you're probably deviating from the manual. And if you're deviating from the manual, then one of the ways you want to hold on to doing evidence-based treatment is by collecting data to monitor the progress of the person you are working with. So mm -hmm. these two things are linked together. Did I explain that clearly enough? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Because you're saying, well, I think this is this is the... So uh, let's go with avoidance in this one. So avoiding what scares you increases your anxiety. So you say this person is scared of elevators because they're not riding elevators. Okay, the, the so my hypothesis here is the avoidance of the elevators is maintaining it. So I expose them to riding elevators. But if their anxiety doesn't change on these tracking measures... Then apparently my hypothesis was was wrong. I don't think in that case it, it could be wrong, but you, know, you, you you never know. 
<laughs> you never know. So you could use these measures to track if you're hypothesis testing. It's a, it's a, it's a data outcome. Uh, one thing I do want to say to patients is that um, you should be able to ask your therapist what their case formulation is. They, hopefully they're communicating it to you. Um, but, but every evidence-based practitioner sh or any practitioner, I would hope, should have some sort of case formulation that they could tell you what they're thinking is about it, what they think the mechanisms that are holding you back, the mechanisms of change, and what they're trying to do in treatment. Would you agree with that? Oh, I absolutely agree. And to me, one of the most appealing things about cognitive behavior therapy and maybe evidence-based treatments more generally is the transparency. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When I work with my patients, I tell them, I think this is what's, what's causing the problem. This is maintaining it. And this is how I think we could fix it. Let's try it out. Um, and I'm sure you've had this experience or maybe not, but I've tried and I've experimented with a technique to work on that mechanism and it didn't work. And I had to say, okay, this isn't working. And then I had to try a different mechanism oh, absolutely. and maybe try another mechanism. But finally, hopefully you find that mechanism that actually, can you give an example of, of sort of how you went through this process of having the hypothesis, it actually coming out wrong. And then you having to shift yourself in order to find something that worked. Yeah, certainly. And I've, I've written up a couple of these cases. The, oh. the, the one that's coming to my mind, uh, I have several coming to mind, so that makes it hard. So the other thing that you can do when you have a hypothesis is just put it out on the table in the transparent way you're describing with your patient. I remember I had a patient who had panic disorder, panic symptoms, panic attacks. I, so I told her, so my hypothesis is you have a belief that these sensations of increased heart rate and other symptoms that you have are dangerous and they're in they're gonna hurt you she said no that's not it oh i've been there before said, my, my <laughs> hypothesis is i shouldn't have to experience these symptoms that is my problem Mm. <laughs> so I'm laughing because why am I laughing? I don't know. She was very definite about it. And it was very helpful information for yeah. me because I need her perspective. Otherwise, we're not going to be collaborating effectively on on treating the problem. Oh, um, yeah. And that's another lesson for patients is like, if we give you a wrong interpretation of what's going on in your experience, let us know. <laughs> Either, yeah, Let me know I got it wrong because I'm going to be treating the wrong thing. And that's not helpful for, for either of us because I want to help you get better. And, you know, I'm not always, I'm probably not going to get it right, you know, enough times. Right, and notice yeah. what's built into the way you're thinking about this is if, is if, the, if the patient speaks up, it's probably the patient is right. Mm -hmm. You know, like as soon as she said that, I knew that she had a better formulation than I did. So thank you for telling me. I wrote up a case with uh, a young woman who was at the time my uh, supervisee at UC Berkeley, Amori Mikami. So Amori and I wrote up a case that was published in Psychotherapy in 2002, a failure case uh, where I had a patient who came in with hypochondriasis and I, and he was doing a lot of checking behavior to check to see if he had illness and he'd go to the doctor and he'd ask mm -hmm. his wife. And so I used an exposure, I used like an OCD conceptualization and I did exposure and response prevention to which he did not get better. So we, and I was monitoring in this very primitive way every week I would ask him, how many episodes of hypochondriacal fear did you have last week? And he would just give me a number. 
he did not get better. So then I said to him, listen, I don't think we're getting the job done here. How about we step back and think about this better? Think about it more. See if we get some other ideas. At which point we did get some other ideas. And I learned, which I could have learned earlier, but didn't ask the right questions, that he met criteria for social phobia, mm. social anxiety disorder. And I thought his core fear was, I'm going to die of cancer. But his actual core fear was, I'm going to be embarrassed and humiliated. Very different. Very different. And so once I figured out that was the core fear, I did different exposures. And both the social anxiety symptoms, which I hadn't known about, remitted, and the hypochondriacal fears remitted too. Cool. Mm-hmm. So the correct uh, conceptualization of your patient is necessary in order for them to get better because you have to make sure that you're treating treating the right thing. So we really need to spend time um, thinking about these things. And you know that there was a comment that you said to me when we did our pre-interview about how when we're doing our job, we have a million decisions to make. I don't know if you said per minute or per second, but it, it, it's a very, you know, where manual labor is a lot of physical labor, our job is very mental intensive tasks yes you know conceptualizing what am i going to do how do i do it without upsetting somebody keeping up people skills being personable making sure and time management so when we're working it it, it is a, a lot of processing going on yep yeah it's a lot of work yeah <laughs> so let's talk about um about the treatment tracking because you're talking here about um, he wasn't getting better and you were doing a rudimentary tracking there, which was how many times this week did you have one of these events? And I'm assuming you were writing that number down and you were tracking to some degree. So let's just talk about what, what does it mean to do symptom or treatment tracking just on a base level? Well, let me say I was definitely writing that number down. And the other thing I was doing is I was making a plot. Mm -hmm. So you got to have a visual representation of your tracking data. Otherwise, you end up with a lot of pieces of data, but you don't have a visual representation of time and is your per are the symptoms going down over time, which is generally what we're looking for. Um, I t I'm trying to use uh, certain standardized measures for early in my practice for the first 20 or 30 years. I use the back depression inventory. Mm -hmm. Now the Beck Depression Inventory is a copyright protected measure, and also I need an online tool. Um, currently I'm using Psych Surveys, which uh, gives me access to a whole library of measures. So I'm frequently using the PHQ-9, the GAD-7. I'm using the Depression Anxiety Stress Scales. Uh, I use the OBQ-44, which has got some measures, some as subscales that measure intolerance of uncertainty, perfectionism, and those kinds of things that I'm often targeting for treatment. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking my patients, you know, go online before your session, fill out these measures, and I'll look at them before the session. And, and not infrequently, we'll look at them together during the session to see how we're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are scales out there, and some of them are pay-for scales, some of them are free scales, and these scales have questions on it like, um, I, I've been um, I've been very fatigued this week, and there might be a scale from one to five, or it might be a different list out. So you answer all these questions, and at the end, there's a score 
Um, usually there's ranges with this, which is like mild, moderate, you know, severe, but, but it's on a continuum. And that number is supposed to quantify a person's, say, depression or their anxiety or, you know, how much they're compl- it could be on very quality of life or maybe there, there's relationship measures or things like that. Um, OCD symptoms. OCD symptoms. So what we're talking about here is having the person fill out these measures to have a, a scientific, consistent way of tracking their symptom severity each session and over time. Okay, yeah. so were you trained to do that? I was not trained to do that, actually. Um, well, you, you want to know what? I, actually, I take that back because we used uh, I think it was called the OQ forty five when I was in yeah. grad school. Yeah. So we Michael would give Lambert's it measure. Yeah, so we would give it at the beginning of every single session, but yeah. I don't remember us really doing anything with with ah. the data except for putting it in our our reports. After that, when, when I went on, we really weren't doing that, and this is like a newer like. Um, not not so new, but a newer thing um, that I learned. Um, I think I through the Beck Institute actually of the effectiveness and how it improves treatment outcomes. So it's definitely something. And I use a practice software called My Best Practice, um, and they have integrated a function where you could give people um, measures through that. It's an electronic medical record system, so you know progress notes and forms and billing and all that. But it does have this um, measure and scale giving function to it, which I think they're, they're going to have some more improvements on um, moving forward. But why do this extra step in this extra work? Why is it important? You know, because we're telling clients you have to fill out this form, or you don't have to, but please fill out this form. It's going to take you a few minutes beforehand. We then need to analyze the form. You're also talking about plotting it. So, you know, it's extra work. What's the point of all this? Good question. Well, it is extra or work, but uh, these days with software tools like the one you're describing and the one I'm using, the, the, you know, the computer magically plots the data, whereas I used to have to plot it by hand, but uh, so that piece of work is easy. Why do it? For many reasons. One is there are good data showing that if you do it, your patients will have better outcomes than if you do not do it. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I find psychotherapy and cognitive behavior therapy. And, you know, you were talking earlier about the high mental load. Like we're trying to solve 18,000 problems in 50 minutes. Psychotherapy is very difficult. There are significant numbers of patients that we cannot help. I feel like I need all the help I can get. And if I tell you, that using progress monitoring software and plotting your outcomes is going to help you get better outcomes, would you be willing to do it? Yeah. Right. It's not that much work. And also, I would say therapists seem to be reluctant to do it sometimes. Oh, well, we could maybe imagine why. But patients are not reluctant to do it. Patients like to monitor outcomes. Hmm. Um, Takes them five minutes before the session. Uh, it is more work for the therapist, and it can be a little intimidating because basically it's a sort of holding yourself accountable for helping your patient. And if the scores are showing your patient is not getting better, now you need to start thinking, okay, we're not getting the job done. I need, I need to think about what I'm going to do next. So it does put more burden on you mm-hmm. to get in there and move into problem solving if your patient is not getting better. So. In that sense, it's more work. 
Um, well, do next might be, um, am I seeing this correctly? Or do next might be, do I need to refer to somebody else? Because yeah. I, I personally can't, um, can't help. Yeah. Or like, for example, one of the things I'll do, depressed patient comes in my office, depressed patient says, I want cognitive therapy. I don't want medication. I'll say, listen, I, how, I'm going to make a deal with you. I would be very happy to work on the cognitive therapy approach and see if we can get the job done. And frequently we can. If you and I get, and we're going to monitor progress every session. If we get down the road, we're like 12 weeks down the road or even like eight weeks down the road and we are seeing no change. I'm going to want to have a discussion with you about making a change in the treatment plan of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, adding pharmacotherapy might be something I'll be wanting to talk to you about. Um, but we have actually data in the, in the literature showing, I have published one of these papers myself. Uh, if your patient, if your depressed patient is still showing symptoms in the severe range in the fifth session, the probability that your patient is going to remit is very low. So uh, if we don't see early change, we know we need to start thinking about making a change in the treatment plan, which might involve referring to another therapist, mm -hmm. adding pharmacotherapy, uh, couples therapy, something's got to change here. And how, how quickly, so now clinicians might be out here or patients might be out here like, all right, I'm going to fill out these measures. We're going to track it. What what level of change are we expecting per session, like per time? How do we know that there's enough change? How do we, and how long are we looking in order to find that change? Well, let me say those are empirical questions that we don't have a lot of answer to, but the, the researchers are starting to collect data to answer those questions. We do know for patients with depression, and I think there's also some data for substance use and social anxiety and binge eating disorder um we want to see see it's hard for me to give you a a size of change we want to see some decrement in the slope mm -hmm. in the first five sessions of treatment if we got a flat line the prognosis is poor so um but how much change is enough is i don't think we know the answer to that um, but certainly if there's no change in five sessions, we need to start talking about, are we targeting the wrong mechanisms? Uh, I'm, I'm not giving you homework assignments that make sense to you. So for whatever reason, you're not doing the homework. Maybe we're not quite on the same page. We don't quite agree on the formulation. You don't feel quite comfortable and safe with me. I don't know what it is, but mm -hmm. how about we start talking about it? But the question about how much change is needed. It's hard for me to answer. I don't think we have the data to answer that question yet. Okay. And, you know, some other benefits of the tracking, um, I imagine you, you had talked about triggers before, like your patient who moves, you guys get triggered. Like, um, what are some other outcomes? So besides just tracking people getting better, what other useful information do you get from tracking these scores over time? Another piece of useful information is... Um, suicidality like have you ever had a patient come in your office significantly depressed quite a bit of suicidal ideation so you're monitoring the suicide suicidal ideation and stuff early in treatment quite carefully 
-hmm. then your patient gets quite a bit better. And so the monitoring of the suicidal ideation and behavior drops off your radar. That's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. If your patient is doing a tracking measure, that assessment never drops off the radar. Patient reports on it every week. So that is a helpful thing. Now, of course, then it puts you, the therapist, on the hook for paying attention to the results of that assessment. Yep. Um, but it, it does save you from the problem of forgetting to assess it, which mm -hmm. is another problem. Um, another type of information that the tracking gives you, I think you hinted at a moment ago, because what will happen is a uh, patient has a big ticket life event. The dog dies or uh, the promotion that you were hoping for didn't come your way. If, then often we can see a blip in the scores. Sometimes we see blips in the scores that we weren't expecting, and it gives us new information about the formulation. Mm -hmm. Oh, this patient, um, he didn't get the promotion, and it affected him quite a bit, or maybe it didn't even affect him all that much. Maybe now I'm learning that um, the work isn't all that important to him, which I hadn't maybe quite realized, or he's halfway out the job, out the door on that job and is really just kind of going through the motions. So watching the movements up and down of the scores can give you information that helps you understand your patient, uh, the, the formulation and what's important to your patient that otherwise uh, you might miss. Would you label those bumps and valleys in, or in order to get like some sort of collection of data to see if there's some sort of theme or pattern? Yes, certainly. If my software tool allows me to do it, I would like to label those. Like I have a patient I'm thinking about now. He's got PTSD. We had two or three big symptom flare-ups. I can't remember now what they were tied to, but I want to remember what they were tied to because after a while you can sometimes see a theme that you don't at first see. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I, I was saying before, in some ways it takes more work, but in another way it takes away work. Absolutely. It helps you out. Another way it helps is think about this. How often do you have a patient comes in your office and says, how many sessions am I going to need? Mm -hmm. Now, those questions are difficult to answer. So a, a piece of the answer I'll frequently give is we're going to monitor your progress. And we should be able to see some progress very early on. Within two, three, four sessions, especially if it's a depressed patient, we should see some improvement in your scores. And we're going to be looking for that. If we do not, then you and I are going to be talking about it and figure out what adjustments do we need to make to get you the result. Um, that kind of information is reassuring to the patient because their patients are often worried, oh, I'm going to come in your office, I'm going to be here years later, and nothing is going to change. They're worried about that. Mm -hmm. So if I assure them, number one, we're going to monitor progress. And number two, I'm very concerned about progress. If we're not going to be getting it, we're going to be making some change. Uh, that is often very reassuring to patients and helps them have confidence in the treatment and kind of settle in um, in a way that otherwise they have difficulty doing. Mm -hmm. And it, it also prevents patients from getting stuck in unhelpful therapy because if oh, they absolutely. see their scores not changing. Um, and it's been like three months and the scores are staying roughly the same, then I would hope the person would go, okay, well, may maybe something needs to shift here. 
Right. And here's another thing that I find progress monitoring helps with, which is the patient who comes in my office gets a certain amount better, but then the scores plateau. Mm -hmm. And then the time passes, weeks pass, months pass, patient is happy. Patient likes coming in to see me every week. I enjoy this person. We have a nice relationship. It's comfortable. Patient is not getting better. Mm -hmm. This is not okay with me. <laughs> I'm not willing to do it. Patient's happy. So then, but if I have data showing this flat line, it gives me leverage. So occasionally I have to say, okay, so now here's the deal. Do we agree? You came in, you were in deep trouble, you got quite a bit better. Now you're plateaued. We're in this kind of middle territory. Now you're not changing. Do we agree on that? Okay, so let me say to you, I did this with one of my cases, which I wrote up also. I said, I'll tell you what, we've been doing this kind of thing for a long time. Something is being missed. I would tell you, we need to make some kind of change in the treatment plan, and we need to do it by this and such date. Like six weeks from now, I'll say. So what today is what? March 15th or so. So I'll say May 1. We need to make a change in the treatment plan by May 1. My recommendation to you would be go see your pharmacotherapist, see if he has recommendations for you. Let's add, let's go back to the couples therapy or add a different couples therapy. Or if you have another change you can suggest, I'm happy to hear it. May 1, I'm not willing to go forward unless we have a change in the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. I don't like doing that. It's extremely difficult to do that, but having a, the progress monitoring data helps me do it. Yeah, and, But on the other side of it, not just the client, I think it, it helps keeps us honest. You know, Absolutely. when you're seeing a lot of patients, you're tired, you, you know, you're doing this, you're tracking all of these things, and it's a very easy way to look on and say, oh, well, well this person isn't, isn't really progressing anymore. I, I need to figure out what's going on here so you don't lose you don't lose perspective of what's going on in any given case because uh, it takes the mental load because it's not subjective you actually have numbers plotted online and you data. could look at yeah. the you could look at the line and it almost seems silly in a way not to do some of this tracking because what we're trying to do is help people get better that that's ultimately what we're trying to do so we have a way to see if people are getting better like we're measuring exactly what we're trying to achieve yeah, although I, maybe I would hesitate to say exactly. You know, some of our measures don't quite get at what we're trying to accomplish in the therapy. So well, absolutely. Absolutely. It, at the same time, the measures are really, like, imagine you were going to go to your cardiologist because you had a cardiac problem, and then the, the cardiologist was not going to monitor your blood pressure or take any labs. I mean, like, you can't work like that. you got to have data. Mm-hmm. Do you think that these areas where we don't have measures is because they're just too hard to measure? Or do you think that those measures just aren't there yet? Like relationship satisfaction? I'm sure there's a measure of that. But, you know, is it that we just don't have the measure yet? Or are there just some parts of therapy that we can't throw a number on? I think it's because we don't have the measure yet. I mean, these things are hard to measure. But um, one thing I notice is because the randomized trials were very focused on DSM disorders, we have measures for monitoring symptoms of DSM disorders. The measures we're missing are, we, we're weak on measures of functioning, we're weak on measures of well-being and positivity, and a key gap in our field is 
a measure to track progress toward the patient's ideographic treatment goals. Like I want a measure that lists your treatment goals and helps me track whether you're making progress in your treatment goals. There are some measures that try to do that, but I don't like them very much. And that's a measure of where, an area where the field is weak, but it can be done. We just need people to, to focus on getting it done for us because we need it. Yeah. So, so you mean something like say that there's a depressed athlete and one thing they want to do is get back in their fitness routine and practice yep. again and stuff like we don't have a measure that measures um, integrated, you know, performing athletic, performing exercise and going to baseball practice. Right. Well, I, or the depressed patient, I want to measure depressive symptoms. I want to measure depressive symptoms go down, athletic functioning goes up. I'm doing my workouts. I'm not fighting with my wife anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm reducing my alcohol intake. I want a measure that tracks all those things that you and I are working together on mm -hmm. in treatment. You know, I, and I'm just like thinking ahead and I always think about these um, multivariate statistics like log logarithmic. Um, uh, multiple regressions where they kind of fight for the space and they knock out less predictive. You know, I wonder if you need all that. I wonder if if there's just one measure that could like rule them all, kind of like Lord of the Rings. Like, do we need to measure everything, or if we measure these two, it will kind of carry most of the weight? But I guess that's for future. Uh, well, it's an interesting empirical question. Yeah, yeah, but the first, I think we need to get enough people tracking, and then we could figure out <laughs> exactly what how much we need to track. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the tracking also helps see if there's anything cyclical, if there's anything yes. with hormone cycling, yep. if there's anything with seasonal cycling, right. or, you know, there's cycles where um, someone's partner might have a job where they go out, where they move uh, for, to go to work for a month, say they work on an oil rig or they're in the yep. military and you could see the cycles that, oh, well, we have a dip. What, what changed here? That's right. Oh, this is when my husband got deployed again. Yep. Oh, this was when my wife, oh, this is when my, my child was on spring break and I was nervous uh, the, whole, the whole time or whatever it might be. Absolutely. Those are great examples. And sometimes the patients don't even realize or we don't even realize, oh yeah, there is a cyclical pattern. One of my colleagues had a woman whose scores, if you tracked them long enough, you could see that once a month her depression score blipped up. It was tied to her menstrual cycle, hmm. which she hadn't realized until she looked at the plot. Yeah. And, and and do you think that you would have seen it without the without the plot? No, I wouldn't have seen it without the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Um so what are the barriers here? Why why are more people not doing this? Well, I think unless you were trained to do it, the barriers do seem intimidating. Now you have to go and find a software tool. You have to pick a measure. You have to learn the skill of introducing the measure to your patient. You have to be willing to face the data yourself because it does keep you accountable. Like some, like as a therapist, you might be worried, well, I don't know if I want to see how my patients are doing because I might find out they're not doing so well and I sort of don't want to get that information. Um, those are the main barriers mm -hmm. that I can think of. I, well, I, I could also think of the barrier of what you said before is that we don't have a scale to me measure everything. So some people yep. might say, well, I, th these numbers might not be changing, but I'm actually working on X, Y, and Z, and, and that's not being measured. So now I look like I'm doing a bad job. Yeah. Uh, but and really, then, I'm not. Yeah. And then how do I go and get a measure of that other thing? Where is it? 
what measures should I use? Solving the issue of what measures to use is it's it's a whole another piece of work. I have certain go-tos that help me out with that, but um, the problem that you discuss, which is if I choose the wrong measure, I might not actually see the benefits of the treatment. That is a real problem. So you could go old school and you could just say, you know, after when people are allowed to do more things in person is just have this paper pencil, yep. you score it up, um, you could you could manually plot it. Um, there's an app that you use. Um, there's a program um, that I have that that it, that has started doing this, and I'm assuming that this is going to become more, um, more integrated over time. So an access barrier is there, but there are there is some access now for people to actually do this, and there's free open source measures, so yep. it doesn't need to cost people that much that much money. Like, how much okay. is this app that you're using per month? Well, I'm using Psych Surveys which is a software tool that gives me access to a whole bunch of measures and it costs me five dollars a month hmm. okay so I that's a low barrier and, and does your client download the app too when they fill it out on there and then you get a copy of the score yeah they can do it on their phone they can do it on their browser uh, they just download the app go to the browser set up an account fill out the measure um Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not getting any pushback. I, I'm thinking in my head, like, I literally thought of this idea like a couple of years ago, but I'm assuming that a ton of people <laughs> that are listening to the podcast are going, I thought of that too. You know, because like somebody had to do it. Somebody had to develop this way of us giving a measure or something and then us getting the data pretty easily. And yeah. you know, it's 2021. Yeah. Uh, hopefully the Although, technology will meet up with the need. Yeah, the technology, I mean, psych service is my go-to right now, but it's still a little bit clunky, It's, it's be, but the, the developers working well with me, I like uh, working with them. And let me just say, full disclosure, I don't make any money from this tool. Uh, you have one that you use that I'm going to go and look at, too, my best practice. I'm sure there are others. Um, yep. Yep, they, they could. It does seem like an easy thing to do, and it's especially helpful during the pandemic. You know, where the patient is over there, I'm here. I want to get some read of how you're doing when I actually cannot see you physically. I can't give you a piece of paper very easily. Hmm. Had you said that you were using Google Docs for a while simply, or there's a way to use Google Docs in order to do this? Uh, yeah, some of my colleagues use Google Docs. Yeah, you could set up a Google Doc uh, questionnaire and ask your person to go in there and fill it out. And I think you can get it to give you a plot. I'm not quite sure. I'm not very... Yeah. with google docs uh, right. but i think you i don't know if you can do a plot okay and what what about those clinicians that have been saying you know for the last 15 20 years um i've been just fine without this and i'm having good treat you know treatment outcomes why like why go ahead and make any change well i mean i would my actual opinion is that uh if it's important to you to do evidence-based practice, you got to be collecting data. Like, think about this. Even if you're following the manual, say the patient is in your office, depressed patient, you're following the manual from Beck's Cognitive Therapy for Depression, which we know is an empirically supported treatment and has been shown to be effective in the randomized trials. So in that sense, you're doing evidence-based practice. Notice that there is 
data from the randomized control trials, those data are important. You want to be doing treatments that have been shown effective in the randomized control trials. But the real data you want is, is this treatment who's helping this patient who's in your office right now at this moment? If you don't have data to answer that question, in my opinion, you are not doing evidence-based mm -hmm. practice. And usually people who think like you and me, Jason, and cognitive behavior therapists, and even the APA policy is saying evidence-based psychological practice includes progress monitoring to monitor the effectiveness of the treatment you're providing. And and what were the measures that, because um, you had said some some before, and I'm backtracking, yeah. but you know, what, what are the measures that might be open source that people sort of could take a look at? And what, what do the measures do? What do they actually measure? Uh, one of the main ones is the PHQ-9, Patient Health Questionnaire 9, Open Source Measure of Depressive Symptoms. So it's a nine-item scale. It measures depressive symptoms. And then there's a tenth item that measures to what degree do these symptoms interfere with your functioning. And that measure is widely used around the world, and it's available in many languages. Just do a Google search of PHQ-9 or Patient Health Questionnaire 9. Easily find it. Another common one is the GAD-7, uh, which measures anxiety symptoms, especially uh, worry-type symptoms. I use uh, the depression-anxiety stress scales, which is another um, open-source measure. Uh, and I like it because it measures some symptoms of physiological arousal, anxiety and panic especially, and it also measures low positive affect that we see in depressive symptoms. Um, the Y box, I don't know if the Y box, the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale is quite open source, but all of these are available on uh, psych surveys. I mean, that's the advantage of some of these tools. I don't know if your tool does it. It gives me a whole library of measures to choose from, tells me what they all measure, and I could just, they collected them all for me. So thank mm -hmm. you very much. Yeah, yeah my, my tool has a list of pre, uh, Pre, I, I think you could add your own too, but uh, I, I can't. I can't quite, re quite remember because I haven't done that. So it's nice if the tool will give you a library from which to choose. So, as a as a clinician, you don't have to do the legwork to go and get these measures. But the two or three I described are some of the main go tos for those of us who treat adults with mood and anxiety disorders, which is my my main territory. Hmm. Okay, so before we uh, close up shop, any anything I didn't ask you about? This is a big nebulous question for you. Anything I didn't ask you about tracking or, or case formulation that you um, want to put out into the world? No, I appreciate that you give me you gave me a chance to give my sales pitch for um, tracking progress in your patients and doing that every session. Don't do it like pre post. Don't do it like every month. Do it every session. Otherwise, you're not going to pick up those patterns like the monthly cycle. I wouldn't pick that up unless I had every week, mm -hmm. every session. So that's my one of my current main passions. So I appreciate you gave me the chance to uh, give a sales pitch. No, absolutely. What about those clients that, don't, that just don't want to do it or they keep forgetting to, to do it? Do, do you keep pushing it or do you just say like, okay, well, they're, they're not going to do it. Like we'll figure I'm it out. Forgetting is way. not a problem. You can do oh, it right forgot? in session. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Easy solution.
Easy solution there. Well, the oh. therapist has to have chutzpah and, you know, be prepared to do it. But my <laughs> message is um, it's part of treatment. Or I, I heard Marshall Linehan give a talk once, you know, like, the diary card will save your life. But the general idea is I can't take good care of you unless you give me the data. So here's the measure. If you'll fill it out right now, it'll help me get you what you need. Mm-hmm. So okay. the therapist has to be convinced of the importance of the measure. Once a the therapist gets it, the patient gets it. Get it. So uh, clinicians, um, you know, s- some some questions to ask: uh, How much time am I putting into case formulation? Do I find this to be a useful idea in order to improve treatment outcomes? And um, should I be using tracking measures if I'm not in order to see uh, if things are getting better and if my case formulation is 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 correct? It's a way of checking in to see if the way that we're thinking about our patients. Same thing for patients. Um, if you're not getting symptom tracking now, is this something you might want to ask for? Um, is If you don't know your case formulation or your clinician's case formulation, is that something that you might want to um, ask your therapist about what their, what their formulation, what their hypothesis that's going on if you, if you don't quite know? And it's very possible that, um, that the person does have it and they might not have explicitly sort of said it, but has been doing the work and explaining it. But, you know. Uh, any other questions that you think clinicians or or clients should uh, keep on top of mind based on today's talk? No, you've given a good list, Jason. Thank you. So if people want to follow the work that you're doing um, or they want to, you know, uh, yeah, just see anything that's, re- that's related to, to you, is there like a Twitter, an Instagram, a web page, uh, maybe a book resource or something like that that they could connect to? Well, my center has a has a web page where, in fact, I do post a numbers of these measures and tools. That so you could go to my web page, which is www.oaklandcbt.com, which stands for Oakland Cognitive Behavior Therapy. dot com. Okay, and can if somebody wants if somebody's in California or in the area, is there are treatment providers that they could come see if they. Um, if they go on there, is it more of just a, a resource of information? I don't have a list of providers, but I'm happy to uh, help anybody who, who need. I like to know everybody here. So if you need help in California, well, if you need help in Northern California, just reach out to me. Okay. Um, I talked about your case formulation book. It was so useful for me. Uh, what What's the title? Where can people find it? I'm sure the answer is Amazon, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I imagine Amazon. It's published by Guilford. It's called... The Case Formulation Approach to Cognitive Behavior Therapy, published by Guilford. Okay. And uh, Amazon, yes, of course. Amazon has everything, doesn't it? Oh, it, it absolutely does. Um, any other books or resources that you uh, would recommend to people, whether it's yours or somebody else's? I think I already gave you my progress monitoring software tool, mm-hmm. so that's the first thing that comes to mind as well. Okay. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, be on the show. Like I said in the beginning, I was so excited for you to come on just because I've been, you know, your work has helped my work from the very beginning. So, you know, thanks so much for coming and having the chat with me. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you for inviting me.